Um, this semester, we are going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. And it's a book in the Bible that really highlights the connection between like what a Christian is and what a Christian does. It's a great book that connects like what, um, who we are in Jesus and how we're supposed to live out the Christian life. And so the title for this series is going to be called Walking as Called. And it comes straight from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. So that's what we're going to be looking at all semester long. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about vocation, jobs, okay, or interpersonal relationships. We're going to talk about this book actually mentions the grand sweeping picture of what God is doing in all of history. So I really hope that you'll make Wednesday nights a priority in your life you know, here at RUF this semester. Invite your friends. It's going to be, we're going to have a great time. So I really want, um, want you to know that, about what's going on. So we're going to start from Ephesians chapter um, 1. And I'm going to just read the first 14 verses. If you have the little handout thing, it should be on there. But if you don't, you can always find it in your Bible too. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Real quick thing, I don't want to mention much on it. We sign our letters at the end, sincerely, Ryan. Paul, and this that you would have signed the letter at the front. That's why he puts his name there. That's just telling you who it's from. So, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank You for this night. Please be with me as I teach and I speak. pray that I would get out of the way and let You do Your thing tonight. I'm thankful for my college friends and ask that you would bless them and let them hear your word, that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would comfort us. Some of us don't even know what to make of you. Would you simply inform us tonight? Would you have questions answered that we have? We ask all this in your name, Lord. Amen.
Well, the scene begins with a man, presumably dead, floating in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. We don't know how he got there, we don't know what he's doing, and we don't know why he is there. The captain of the boat that finds him pulls him aboard and begins to dig two bullets out of his back. A third incision goes in and he pulls out a computer chip that has a Swiss bank account number on it. He begins to wrestle with the captain because he comes back and he says, who are you? And the man replies, I don't know. God, I don't know. And so begins the 2002 movie, The Born Identity. If you've seen it, it's phenomenal. But you know what it's about. It's about a man trying to figure out who he is. He goes on a quest to sort of ask the question, how did I get here? What am I doing? What's my purpose? These are the sort of things that go on throughout the movie. And I want to suggest to you, while you may never have had two bullet holes in your back floating in the middle of the Mediterranean, I would venture to guess that you're asking those same questions. Maybe not in this moment, but at some point you have. What questions are they? It's the, huge, it's the biggest one you'll ever ask. Who am I? Who am I? And I want to say that if you are asking that question, that you're in very good company. Because Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians with a megaphone answering that question. This is who you are. This is your identity. I want you to know that this is who you are in Christ. And so Paul is going to answer those questions by sort of asking three more. And I'm going to phrase them in the form of questions for the sake of our time tonight. First, how did I get here? Second, what sort of person am I to be? And lastly, what is my purpose. These three things, says Paul, points us to our truest identity and it answers the question, who am I? And I'll tell you right now what it is. I will tell you the answer right now. That you are an orphan turned son or daughter set apart to bless the world so that Jesus would be celebrated and enjoyed as king over all things. Let me say that again. You are an orphan turned son or daughter. uh, Set apart to bless the world so that Jesus would be celebrated and enjoyed as king over all things. I've got news for you. If you're in Christ, this is who you are. Nothing less. So let's take a look. How in the world did we get here? Now before we begin, I'm looking at verses 1 through 5 right now. I want you to know that verses 3 to 14 are really one sentence. There's 220 verb, uh, words in that sentence. And it's sort of Paul going like, and this is who God is, and this is what He's done. And this is, it's like he's just going on and on and on because he's so grateful. He's bursting forth in gratitude for who God has made him, made him to be. So when I ask the question right up here, how did we get here? What do I mean by the we getting here? Who are the we that I'm talking about? Well, look with me in verse 1. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus. Ephesus was a Roman colony in present-day Turkey. 
And he's writing to the saints there. Now, when you hear the word saints, you might think like, oh, that's those super spiritual people. Or that's those people that have got it all together. Or that's those people that really know their Bibles and read their Bibles all the time. And I've got news for you, that's not it at all. When Paul uses the word saints in any of his letters, he just simply means Christians. You and me. Students who go to TCU who are in Christ. That's all he means by saints. So if you're a Christian today, you're, this is, you're a saint. That's what that means. Now, but it's not just the saints. It's saints in Christ. Look with me again. It's right there. And what he means is, is that in as much as you're in the Robert Carr Chapel right now, or uh, you're in the engineering program, Paul means to say that you are literally, this is Christ, you're in him. And we talk about that being union with Christ, such that whatever is said about Jesus is true of you. That's why later on in chapter 2, Paul can say, you have been raised with him. See, you haven't died yet. You're still here. I mean, I'm I'm assuming you're not dead. And the point is, is that whatever is true of Jesus, Paul can say, that's what's true of you. So it's to the saints who are in Christ. That's what I mean by the we and the here, okay? What about the getting here? What do I mean? Secondly, I just not, not, not second point, second sub-point of this. Here's what I mean by this. That Paul is talking about the way that you got put in Christ. He is saying, look with me at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 that He has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And again, look with me down at verse 11, that you have been predestined according to the plan, the purpose of Him who works out all things. What is He getting at? The point could be, and it couldn't be any clearer. You got here in Christ because God before time put you there. Put you in Him. You did not put yourself there. How could you? Your salvation is from first to last a work of God. Now listen, at this point, things get a little bit hairy in the lives of a lot of college students. Because what this is, is the doctrine of predestination and election. And for a lot of folks, that causes a lot of questions and problems. Here's my pastoral plug. Come to lunch tomorrow at Jarvis if you've got questions. It's a great place to ask them and to talk about them. We're in a meeting for an hour you can come, bring your lunch. We'll talk it out for a little while if that's what you want to talk about. That's tomorrow. I can't, I can't keep going on about it tonight. I have to move on. Lastly, what is the here? I'm still in point, point one. It is, look with me at verse five, that he has predestined us for adoption. Adoption. Now, in Roman law, if you were adopted as a child, you were admitted to the family as a full heir. That meant that you were treated as equals with the biological kids, the biological family. And you could not be disinherited. You couldn't, be, you, you couldn't lose your inheritance as, as a son. You were in the family for good, and you were in the family definitively. You could not be halfway adopted. You either were or you weren't. Now, I just have a friend today they went to court and they got custody of their second child. Uh, Russ does our artwork. That's why we don't have any artwork yet because he's been going through court to get his second adopted uh, son. 
And today on his Facebook, listen to what he wrote. He said, there is not a more poignant picture of the gospel than adoption. Today the court ordered that Desmond now has a new name and the full rights of a natural-born son, including our protection, provision, and even an inheritance. That's beautiful. And what Paul is saying is, is that if you are in Christ, you won't one day be adopted. You already are. Let that sink in. You already are. You have been turned from an orphan into a son or a daughter of the Most High God. That's who you are, y'all. That's crazy to me. Go ahead and go to the next picture. This is my niece, Olivia. She caught her first fish. It's pretty fun. She lives close to the pond. She's three, three and a half. And uh, one of the things I like to do when I see her, I saw her over Christmas, I like to call her George. And I say, hey, George, how's it going? I haven't seen you in a long time. How you been? And she says, I not George. I Olivia Wren Anderson. Her name's Olivia Wren Anderson. She can't say her G's, so she says George. The point is, is that Olivia knows who she is. She knows who she is by birth in the sense that, like, she didn't do anything to become an Anderson. And you didn't do anything to become in your family either. You got put there. That's what Paul is trying to say about you. The way you got there was, had nothing to do with anything that you did. It's all of grace. It's all of God's kindness. And you are a son or a daughter if you are in Him. Now I want to ask a question. Christian, Christian, not non-Christian, Christian. Is this what you think of yourself? Do you think that that is your identity? J.I. Packer said this. He said, there is no higher label that you can have placed on you than to be called a son or a daughter of God. That more defines you than anything else in your life. I just ask you, do you think that way about yourself? Non-Christian. Somebody in here who's still investigating perhaps the claims of Christianity. A lot of the times we suck at living like this. And I just want to apologize. I had a man in Barnes & Noble the other day. You can go to the next slide, Laura. I mean, just, yeah, the next one. He was saying to me, hey, hey, do you know anything about Christianity? I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. He goes, wait, uh, first of all, are you a pastor? I said, uh, yeah, I am. And he goes, I don't want to talk to you then. I said, well, okay, why not? And he goes, because Christians, only thing, pastors, only thing they care about is sex and money and power. That's the only thing they care about. And I had to say to him, I, I actually understand where you're coming from. I appreciate what you're saying. But I want, I want you to know that he missed a very key component about what it meant to be a Christian. What Paul is saying is that what it means to be a Christian is primarily about status and not the way that you behave. No matter how good or how bad. I want to ask you a question. If I ask you a question, are you a Christian? Don't answer it out loud. How do you answer it? If you answer, well, I'm trying to be a good one, you fundamentally miss what it means to be a Christian. The answer is either yes or no. 
Not I'm trying to be a good one, because that's not what Paul's talking about. Either you're a son and you've been adopted, or you're a daughter and you've been adopted, or you're not. It's wonderful news. So here raises the question, how do we account for what this man in Barnes & Noble talks about? Second point, what sort of people are we supposed to be? Paul talks about it right here in verse 4. Look with me. Second question we're answering tonight. He says that you should be holy and blameless before Him. Holy and blameless are the two things that I'm wanting to look at. He's saying, if this is who you are, what should your lives look like? Holy and blameless. Two things, two sub-points. First of all, what kind of lives? First, when God saved us for Himself, His agenda for us is that we would be holy and blameless. In other words, when you were adopted, you're supposed to be the sort of child that lives out the family name. That you live out like your family's supposed to live. You know this. I used to get this all the time. When I would go out as a high school or something like that, my dad would look me in the face and he'd say what? Remember who you are. Remember the name that you carry. That's what Paul's getting at here. Act, behave in accordance with that because of who you are. Listen, this is what Paul is trying to say that we should be. A people that are holy and blameless. And he's saying, here's how to live it out. Because if you're like me, you're like, come on, Paul, you don't know me. I mean, if if you really knew me, y'all would kick me off the campus lickety split. If you really knew me. The point is, is because Paul is saying, look down here in verse 13, that you have been sealed with the what? Holy Spirit. That God Himself actually takes up residence in your life to aid you to become holy and blameless. That your life is a project that God, to use the language of the speaker at summer conference from this past year, that He is working behind all of the details in your life to conspire to what? Make you like Jesus. That is what God is up to in the work and the person of the Holy Spirit in your life. In short, we would say that the sort of people that we're supposed to be is to live out who we are. The Christian life properly lived is an expression of who we are in Jesus, so that we might actually be a blessing to the world. You see, God doesn't call you to be holy and blameless just so He can make you a holy roller. That ain't the point. The point is is that you would bless the world around you, that you would go back to your dorms, that you would go back to your fraternity or sorority houses, that you would go back to your engineering department, that you would go back to your hometown, that you would take a job one day, that you would raise a family one day, so that what? The people around you would be blessed. That they would get to see who this God is, and that you would be the person that gets to convey that. Holy rollers, that's too low of a goal. You're selling yourself too short if you think that that's what God's agenda is for your life. He has made you and called you to Himself so that you would be a blessing to the world around you. One small hand closed on the letter beside Him, and He slept on, not knowing He was special. 
not knowing he was famous. He couldn't know that at this very moment. People were meeting in secret all over the country, were holding up their glasses and saying in hushed voices to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. And so ends the first chapter of the Harry Potter saga. Here is a boy who didn't know who he was until he turned 11. And then he goes off to Hogwarts and he begins to find out the story about him, about who he really is. And for the rest of his seven years at Hogwarts, he begins to embrace this, this person of who he's supposed to be. Who is it? He and he alone can kill Lord Voldemort. And he begins to embrace it through the years, through struggles and the whole nine yards. But the point is, is that he begins to live out who he really is. I just ask you, are you living like that? Are you? Join me. Let's encourage one another. Let's encourage one another this semester to live out who we really are. I have a warning. I'm going to speak tenderly here. If you take the name of Christian and your life lives out of accord with who you profess yourself to be, you're on shaky ground. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. I am saying that you might not be one. Here's why. Your life has no, you have no grounds to rest your profession on. I'm not saying that performance is the thing that saves you. You know I wouldn't say that. That's what we talked about all last semester. My point is, is that if you are in Christ, your life will bear it out. There is no mistaking about it. Kill sin in your life. John Owen, the old pastor, used to say, if you are not killing sin, it is killing you. There is no other option. There is no other option. Live out who you were made to be. Lastly, the last question, what in the world is my purpose? Paul answers the purpose of your life. What are you living for? What's the purpose of your life? I'll just ask you, don't answer. What is it? If you had to answer that, I'm going to pause. I want you to think about it. Why do you exist? That's another way of saying it. You know what Paul's going to say if you're a Christian? Look with me. Verse 6, 12, and 14. I'm starting in 6. In lo- uh, Sorry, I'll start in 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his grace to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Verse 5. To the praise of his glory. What is our purpose? We have just said that we are to be the sort of people who, who are in Jesus for the sake of the world around us. But that, believe it or not, is not our ultimate purpose. Your ultimate purpose is what Paul has just saying, to the praise of His glorious grace. That is why you exist. Let me put it this way. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, your life is not about you. It is about Jesus. That is your purpose. And you don't get to decide, I'm sorry, I wish I would love to be able to, what your life's about, but Jesus does. 
And he says that you exist to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, if you're like me, when you hear that, you go, what in the world is that about? That just sounds like religious jargon to me. So I'm going to break it down for you. The year was 1998. Me and 107,000 of my closest friends are all crammed into the first home game of the 1998 season of the University of Tennessee Volunteers. We are 1-0 coming into the second game. We had just beat Syracuse. It is now our rival game against the University of Florida Gators. They have owned us the past five years. The game ends in a 17-17 tie. Tennessee gets the ball first. We march down the field. We get stopped. Jeff Hall lines up a kick, splits the upright. The Vols are now up 20-17 to in overtime. The... I mean, the excitement with 107,000 people all crammed into one space, you, it just makes your hairs stand up on end. Now it's Florida's turn. They go down the field, get a first down. They go down the field one more time. They get stopped. It's fourth down. It's time to kick a field goal for the tie. Out comes their kicker. What's his name? I forget. I wrote it down. Courtney Collins or something like that. Anyways, it doesn't matter. The ball is snapped. The ball is put down. The ball is off. And what happened after that was sheer pandemonium. He missed wide left. The Vols win 20 to 17. And as I look up, I'm in the sixth row. I look up and I see about 57 other rows coming straight at me. And within seconds, I'm on the field, the goalposts are down, and everybody is going absolutely berserk that we have just beat the Gators. Now, what was going on in that moment? In that moment, everybody was praising the football team. Catch us, you know, whatever. Can you believe it? We finally beat them. The goalposts are gone. This is unreal. Do you know what people, you know what 107,000 people were doing then? They were praising the glory of the Tennessee football team. Paul was saying that you exist to praise the glorious grace of God. And yet, even that is not the end. You know what the end of the story is? You know what Paul's whole point is? The whole point, look with me in verse 10, that as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, that's in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. In the Garden of Eden, there was a massive fracture that happened in the cosmos. God and man and the world that He had made was now separate from God. And God is saying in the person of Jesus, He is taking the whole created order of which you are a part and putting it back together for all eternity. That that which is seen and unseen is being put and crammed back together in the person of Jesus such that one day the entire creation would praise 
and make much of the name and person and work of Jesus. That is the master plan of the entire universe. That is how the story ends. And it ends with you and with me. If you are in Jesus, enjoying Him as our good King forever. Nothing less. That is the purpose of your life. I'm closing with a personal story. It was this text that I read when I was in those pews that utterly shook me and woke me up. Because what I began to see was that there was a God who had been coming after me long before I was ever born, long before the world was ever made. He had a plan to come rescue me and to make much of His name through me. My life, when I was in your seats, was about partying, about finding the next girl, and about making the biggest paycheck when I got done with college. And I just want to say that when this began to come into my life, words fail me here, I just, I became a different man. What about you? What would it look like for you this semester, this semester for you to know and to live out your identity in Jesus? This is what it is. You're an orphan turned son or daughter. Set apart to bless the world so that the entire creation, the entire cosmos would know and enjoy Jesus as king over everything. Nothing less. Will you pray with me?